Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. Walk on over to Walters tonight for a D.C. United pregame party. Register at waltersdc.com to receive one free old-time lager. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 0-2 on the way. Swinging a fly ball deep left field toward the corner. Chasing back Hernandez on the warning track. Will make the catch. Both runners tag. Arnauto will score. The throw into second is cut off as Gorman advances into scoring position. So it's a sacrifice fly for Lars Newtbar. The Cardinals back in front 5-4. Here's the 0-1. Swinging a fly ball deep right center field. Long chase Carlson. This one over his head. And it's gone. It clears the right center field fence for a three-run home run, giving the Nationals a 7-5 lead. Big fly for Josh Bell, number 14, a three-run shot. And this crowd's going crazy on a Saturday night here at Nationals Park. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, July 31st, 2022, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We on Saturday night had one of the more eventful, competitive, exciting Nationals games this season, and the result was a Nats win, uh, a 7-6 win over the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park in Game 2 of a three-game series. There was a lot to your National Saturday, including more in the Juan Soto situation, uh, Eric Fetty being scratched from his scheduled start and being placed on the 15-day injured list. We'll get to all of that, but I tell you what, Mark, uh, Saturday night, live on Fox, we had the A-team, Kevin Burkhardt and Tom Verducci calling the game. Ken Rosenthal was at the game. The game felt like a big deal. Nats Cardinals, Nats certainly were not perfect. Who among us is? But the Nats played a good game and got themselves a nice win. And they did it out before a big crowd that was really into it. 34,440. And that crowd had a couple of moments to really celebrate in a way that has not happened very often this year. And you could tell that it meant something to the players themselves, especially on Josh Bell's three-run homer. To give him the lead in the seventh, that was the kind of moment that we used to see a lot around here. We have not seen it very much the last few years. Bell certainly has not been a part of a lot of that in his one and a half years here. And he was soaking in. He appreciated it. I think there's a little bit of bittersweetness to all this because everybody is aware of the fact that some of the 
people who were involved in this win may not be here in a few more days, but they weren't going to worry about that on this night. They were going to enjoy this moment, celebrate what really was a nice win over a good team before an appreciative crowd. It was a good Saturday night at the ballpark. Yeah, if you're not old enough to remember the 2019 Nats or the 2017 Nats or the 2016 Nats or the 2014 Nats or the 2012 Nats, uh, what we had on Saturday night, uh, we used to have a lot with this baseball team, and hopefully we'll have the likes of what we had on Saturday night often soon enough. But yeah, number of big hits for the Nats in this game, uh, no hit bigger than the Josh Bell home run. So Josh Bell on Saturday night, only one for four, and he did strike out twice, and he did leave five men on base, but the one uh, was a big one, a three-run home run. Josh Bell in an at's three-run seventh, a three-run opposite field home run to right center field for a 7-5 Nats lead, 404 feet per stat cast. Uh, this was very much a seesaw matchup, back and forth. You saw the Cardinals score three runs in the top of the fifth. The Nats respond with three runs in the bottom of the fifth. The Cardinals scored a run in the top of the sixth. The Nats came back with three runs in the bottom of the seventh and then held on for the win as the Cardinals scored in the top of the eighth. But yeah, it is something with Josh Bell right now because, of course, all of the talk is about Juan Soto. But Josh Bell is having a really good season and unlike with Soto, where, you know, you're not exactly positive if he's going to be traded come Tuesday, I think we're all pretty certain Josh Bell is gone. Josh Bell's not going to be here past Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we have heard a lot about the Mets maybe being in on Bell. Houston has come up a lot lately with Josh Bell. And, uh, you know, if that was his last big moment as a Nat, and hopefully it wasn't, but if it was, that was a pretty good moment. That was a key home run in this game, and that was an impressive home run for Bell. And really just a reflection of what he's done for this team for the last year and a half. Like you said, he's not every single at bat the way that Juan Soto is. And he did strike out a couple times with a chance to make a difference. But give him enough chances, as we've seen, he's going to come through more often than not. He's going to deliver for you. And what he did was, I think exactly what we were talking about the other night, how much this team has lacked the ability to hit for power with runners on base, those big game-changing moments. They just don't do it a lot. Well, Josh Bell is one of the few who has been able to do it, and that was one of the best that he's had in his time here. And yeah, he knows this is probably the end of the road for him, and I think it's a little bit strange. I, he he really likes it here. He was really excited to come here last year because at the time he thought he was leaving pretty hopeless situation in Pittsburgh to come to a Nationals team that he thought was going to contend. He really likes the city. I think a part of him would love the idea of locking up and staying here long term. But also having now seen what the organization has become since he got here through no fault of his own, I'm sure that the idea of now going to be in a pennant race for the first time in his career is pretty appealing. And it may be a little bittersweet, but I would bet that within a few days after it happens and he starts to get a sense of what he's now in with a new team, he's probably going to fall in love with it and get to experience what so many other players have been able to over the years. So he he's a really good player. He's a really good teammate, a really good guy. We all like him a lot, have enjoyed getting to know him. And Juan Soto's getting all the attention, but Josh Bell should be one of the biggest names available on the market this week. Yeah, and I think in most years, it would be a pretty big deal. Like, what are the Nats going to get for Josh Bell? But right now, it's like just completely dwarfed by all of the Juan Soto conversation. But, you know, I think it is really cool with Bell because he came to the Nats with the reputation for being kind of an up and down player. And the truth is, his time with the Nats has been mostly up. He got off to a really bad start, but since that bad first month, month and a half, whatever it was last year, it's been a really good hitter for the Nats. And it's too bad that it hasn't meant more 
But that trade that Mike Rizzo made to get Bell Christmas Eve 2020, that does go on the list of all the very good trades that Mike Rizzo has made. Like, that was a good trade. The Nets have gotten some really good production out of Josh Bell. And I'll tell you what else with him on Saturday night. Top of the second, tremendous job of keeping his right foot on the first base bag for the put out for the third out and catching an errant throw from third baseman Michael Franco off a grounder off the bat of Paul DeYoung. You know, we've talked about this with Josh Bell. It's not always pretty, and I don't know that that play was pretty, but that was pretty impressive, him keeping the foot on the bag, you know, catching another one of these uh, bad throws from a Nats infielder. We've seen a lot of them so far this year. You know, for style points, he gets a 10. I mean, that was quite the flop, but he made the play, and the Nats got the out and got out of that inning. It's not graceful, but he gives you everything he's got out there to try to make a play. And I give him a lot of credit for it. He has worked really hard to be better at it. He's not going to be considered a good or above average first baseman. That's just not who he's ever going to be. But he is better than he was, at least based on the reputation when he got here. He takes pride in it. That was a tremendous stretch. That was one of those that when you're watching it live, you're thinking, oh, there's no no way that he actually kept his foot on the base. Like, of course he should be safe. And then you watch the replay and you realize, no, he actually did. It was just enough. It wasn't much, but it was just enough foot on the base, ball in the glove to get him out. And he had another really nice scoop later on the Luis Garcia play was one of the best plays we've seen Garcia make at all. It was too late just by a fraction of a second, but it was a great play by Garcia and a nice scoop on the back end by Bell to make it, at least make it close. Well, another Nat who on Saturday night both homered and made an impressive defensive play, and this guy also had a rough uh, defensive moment, was Victor Robles, who, I don't know, maybe he's becoming like Mr. Saturday Night. It was last Saturday night that Robles in the 7-2 loss at Arizona homered, uh, had a bunt single, had a stolen base at that eventful game against Diamondback starter Madison Bumgarner. Here we were on this Saturday night, and Victor Robles homered again, uh, one for five with a solo home run. He had an eventful night in the field, and then he actually ended up leaving the game due to his left hamstring cramping up. But Victor Robles in an ads one run third, one out solo homer to left field into the Cardinals bullpen on a one-two pitch to tie the game at one. Don't look now, but Victor Robles has three home runs over his last nine games. I don't know if that means anything. But it's something, and, you know, it kind of sort of validates, I guess, Victor Robles being put back in that leadoff spot. He's getting on base some. He's getting some hits some. Uh, The great defensive play that he made top of the seventh, really nice uh, running, lunging, backhanded, uh, falling down catch of a Dylan Carson liner in left center field for the second out. He did have a very questionable throw. I saw you note this on Twitter. Uh, One run eighth, throwing home on a Paul DeYoung one-out RBI sack fly that cut the Nats' lead to 7-6 of the two trailing runners for the Cardinals advance. So St. Louis wound up with runners on second and third, two outs, and what had become a one-run game. So there was that. It feels like there's always something you have to add on to when you talk about Victor Robles having had a good game, and then it's like, yeah, but he also did this too. You know, there's a lot of that with him. But there have been some positives with him lately. And, you know, the homers, look, a guy whose power had been like zapped, three homers over his last nine games, uh, you certainly take that if you're a Nats fan. It was the full Victor Robles experience again. We've had this a few times now, and there's highs with it, and there are lows with it, and you just accept, I guess, that that's what it's going to be. To see the power surge, that's great. Absolutely great. He took a curveball and hammered it to left field, so good for him for that. He makes great plays in center field. Absolutely, that was a big one there. And also, the final out of the eighth inning to get Finnegan out of the jam that could have been all of a sudden game-tied or even them trailing, he had to go a long way to to retrieve that ball that was hit deep. Uh, And actually, that's where he hurt the hamstring 
on that, uh, chasing it down. And that's why he was slow to come up to bat in the bottom of the inning and then didn't look comfortable there at all. That's why he came out of the game. So we'll see how he's doing on Sunday morning, if he can play or if he needs a day off. But we have to talk about the other throw right before that, because it was, in my mind, really egregious. You've got two-run game, bases loaded, one out, and in comes Kyle Finnegan. For the exact same situation, he came in in Arizona uh, a week ago and got the two outs on one pitch, the double play, and then came back to save the game of the ninth. So he was looking for the same thing this time. Unfortunately, he gave up a fly ball. Now, that's a fly ball to medium deep center field. There is no play at the plate. It's not going to happen. If it's a one-run game, you say, okay, maybe you give it a shot. In a two-run game, no. The only runner you should care about at all is the trailing runner, and Victor didn't even look at that. He just uncorked a throw to the plate all along, lets the trailing runner reach third, lets the other runner reach second. It's a good thing it didn't cost them. Finnegan, to his credit, got out of the inning. But if that second run scores, it's a tie game. That is directly on Victor Robles, and it's why he can be so maddening, because you see the good stuff from him. There's no question he has the ability. He can be a great defensive center fielder as well. But he still, all these years later, has not learned the fundamental stuff like that. I don't know how many different ways they can tell that to him. If he hasn't figured it out by now, he may never figure it out. What more can they do to tell the guy, don't throw home on that play? Hit the cutoff man, keep the trailing runner from advancing. Yeah, I think we're probably past the point of him learning not to do those things. I think that's just what he is. And you have to decide as a team, are we going to live with those mistakes? Are his positives overwhelming enough to where those mistakes are worth putting up with or aren't the positives overwhelming enough to put up with those mistakes? And the problem for Robles is the last few years, the positives have not been overwhelming enough to put up with those things. Uh, Now, lately, at least you can maybe kind of sort of argue that it's worth dealing with all of that. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202 486 3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. Here's the set of the 1-2 pitch. Swung on, hit in the air, down the right field line, toward the corner. Long run, and out of the reach of the sprawling Newbar and off the fence. This will score two runs. Cruz heads for second without a play as Soto scores in behind Cesar Hernandez. Two outs. Two-run double gets the Nationals to within a run. It's now St. Louis 4 and Washington 3. 
The Nats on Saturday night had a three-run fifth. Included in that three-run fifth was a big hit, an extra base hit, in fact, from Nelson Cruz. Maybe this was Nelson Cruz's final great moment for the Nats. Uh, not that that list is a lengthy one, but Nelson Cruz in the Nats three-run fifth on Saturday night. A two-out, two-run opposite field double off the right field warning track on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats' deficit to 4-3. This was just Nelson Cruz's third extra base hit, each of which has been a double since he last homered. That was on June 25th. Nelson Cruz has not hit a home run since June 25th. In case you don't have a calendar in front of you, this game on Saturday night was played on July 30th. So over a month now that Cruz hasn't homered, just three extra base hits since he last homered. But uh, this hit was key. And it was funny how that three-run fifth played out. You got the two-out, two-run double by Cruz on a one-two pitch. And then you got from Yadiel Hernandez a uh, big two-out RBI single up the middle on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at four. We talked on the last installment of the podcast how few impressive offensive games the Nats have had lately. Saturday night was a pretty impressive game. Not a lot of hits, but some real clutch hits for the Nats in this game. Yeah, it's like, where's this been? <laughs> like, this is what they've been waiting for. Nelson Cruz, go figure, a two-out, two-run, extra-base hit. Isn't that what he was supposed to be doing for them all year long? And it just has not been the case. But that was a really nice piece of hitting on his part. He took an outside fastball and drove it to right field and reached the warning track to drive in two runs. And then Yadiel Hernandez off a lefty going right back up the middle to drive in the run. So that was a really nice sequence of events there. And it's unfortunate. It just has not happened more regularly outside of Soto and Bell. Nobody else has been doing it for this team. And I figured this out during the course of the game because I knew that Soto and Bell have been such a big part of it. Here's just how big a part of the lineup those two have been. Juan Soto and Josh Bell have accounted for this year 23% of the team's hits, 28% of their runs, 42% of their walks, and 43% of their home runs from those two guys. Now, here's the scary thing is try to imagine what this lineup might look like three days from now if neither one of them is still here. Try not to think about that because it's not pretty. In the meantime, just celebrate and enjoy what you get from them because they are this lineup. They got it from some other guys in this game. Hallelujah. That was great. But this lineup only goes as far as Juan Soto and Josh Bell take them. That certainly has been the way that the season has gone. I still get a kick out of this, though. Nelson Cruz, for all of his struggles this season, and he has had some mighty struggles He's second on the Nats with 52 RBI. I mean, it really is something. And I, I know we've talked about RBI before and, you know, how misleading it can be. But Nelson Cruz has 52 runs batted in. Juan Soto has 45 runs batted in. Even though Soto's OPS for the season is 220 points higher than Cruz's. That is really bizarre that Cruz somehow has amassed 52 runs batted in despite having had really a bad season, like the kind of season that makes you think this is it for him, that, you know, there's not going to be another team next season that wants him on the team just because he's been so non-productive. But yes, yeah, somehow he has found his way to 52 runs batted in this season. I think it's a product of two things. One is that we are hitting behind Soto and Bell, so you are actually coming up with guys on base, whereas Soto, whether he hits second or third, has not come up with guys on base nearly enough. That's been a huge problem. Now, Juan also, it's gotten better, but for the first half of the year, his numbers as runners in scoring position were terrible. So that hasn't helped. But I think just opportunities also have been more prevalent for Cruz. And then the one thing that Nelson Cruz has done, at least at times, hasn't been consistent, but when he's been going well, he has had a knack for these just RBI singles to the opposite field. <laughs> and 
he hasn't been pulling the ball. He hasn't been driving the ball at all. But he has had a knack for a man on third and two outs, ground ball, base hit through the right side, get him home. So he's done that. That's probably where a lot of the RBIs have come from. But you know, the other thing that Nelson Cruz has done, and Josh Bell brought this up unprompted after the game, prior to the big at-bat that Bell hits the home run to change the game, Cruz went up to him and gave him a real quick scouting report on Genesis Cabrera, the Cardinals reliever, said, I faced him last night. Here's what he did. The curveball's pretty good. Changeup, not so much. You already saw the fastball from him. See if you can get him to get you the changeup. And lo and behold, he got a changeup and drove it out. And Josh said that Nelson Cruz has been doing that kind of stuff all year long, that very few guys are as good as that as he is. And he even laughed and said he doesn't necessarily like to get advice from a lot of teammates, but when it's Nelson, he absolutely takes it because he knows the, the reputation there. Nelson knows what he's talking about. Well, I remember in spring training, there was that story of Nelson Cruz telling, I think it was Eric Fetty, that he was tipping his pitches. And you were like, wow, that's pretty cool that Nelson Cruz, A, can pick up on something like that so quickly and B, convey that to a pitcher who obviously, you know, needs help in Eric Fetty. So, yeah, I mean, Cruz has not had a good season, but everyone always raves about the guy as a teammate and as a guy. And uh, the Nats, at least, have been able to benefit from him in that regard. So a wild day for the Nats from a pitching standpoint. Uh, We'll get to the bullpen shortly, but the starting pitcher for Saturday night was supposed to be Eric Fetty, ended up not being Eric Fetty. And Eric Fetty now is on the 15-day injured list. Uh, Where did this come from? So Fetty was supposed to start game two on Saturday night, game two of this series on Saturday night. But the Nats on Saturday afternoon put Fetty on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to July 27th with right shoulder inflammation and recalled pitcher Corey Abbott from AAA Rochester. And it's looking like Abbott is going to be making a start here coming up uh, in the upcoming series against the New York Mets. So I guess we'll go sort of bit by bit here because there's a larger item, which is Cade Cavalli. But Fetty, right shoulder inflammation. Where did this come from? And uh, is this, in fact, a concern here? He's not overly concerned. He said that in his start in Arizona, his last outing, he didn't feel 100%, but especially the day after, he felt sore. So he brought it to their attention. They got an MRI. It showed nothing other than the inflammation. Sounds like they knew about this possibility for a few days. Paolo Espino had been given a warning to maybe prepare himself in case he needed to start this game. So it didn't just come out of nowhere, like, you know, hours before game time, anything like that. Fetty said not very concerned about it. He feels like couple weeks off and he should be good to go. You know, we'll see. As we always know with these things, there's no guarantees. But it was a disappointing, and at least for all of us, surprising development. And of course, when it's trade deadline week and you see without explanation that somebody's been scratched from the lineup, your thoughts go elsewhere. And that was not the case, you know, here. And Fetty even laughed when we brought that up to him, like he never even crossed his mind because he knew that he was hurt. But you know, the hope would be just a couple weeks off and then he'll be good to go. And uh, it wasn't that big a deal because they had a day off. So Paolo was on normal rest. Josiah Gray on Sunday will be on normal rest. Patrick Corbin on Monday will be on normal rest. And it's not until Tuesday now that they need a replacement starter. And because he didn't pitch in this game on Saturday, it does look like Corey Abbott is going to be their choice. All right, so Corey Abbott is recalled from Rochester. If you are keeping track of how many times Corey Abbott has uh, been summoned to the majors by the Nats this season, and I know that so many of you listening are keeping track of that, uh, this is now four times. So Corey Abbott now has been brought up four times this season. Kate Cavalli, who we were told during spring training was like right on the doorstep of being major league ready. He's the Nats' number one prospect. He's considered among the top pitching prospects in baseball. He still has not been called up to the majors. And 
Davey Martinez, I know, addressed this with you guys during the pregame press conference. What exactly did Davey say? Because I, I think there's actually a pretty good conversation to be had here, but you were there for, for what Davey had to say. So what stood out to you in terms of what Davey said? Yeah, and I asked him the question because I think we're getting to a point here where it's obvious that they are making a calculated decision here not to call him up. And, and the way I phrased it was, is it fair to say that they are really basing all these decisions on Cade Cavalli on his development and what they believe his timeline is and not at all based on what the team's needs are. I think we're at a point now where you could say the team has a need for a starting pitcher, and it's hard to argue that Corey Abbott makes more sense for them than Cade Cavalli does from a competitive standpoint right now. But Davey acknowledged that it is not about the team's needs. It's about what's best for Cade Cavalli and his development, and they are insisting that he's not there yet. And they're pointing out things like the fact that in 2020, which was his last year in college, that was the pandemic year, didn't pitch a lot that year, didn't have any minor leagues to go to after he was drafted. Last year, very careful with him and his workload. This year, you've already seen them give him a couple of breaks along the way, including one just now when he had that little blister issue with his finger around the all-star break. So there's a concerted effort to make sure that they are limiting his innings to the point that he still has something left in September, which in theory could be up here and that they want to make sure that he's available, and that once he's up there, they don't have to shut him down, that he could finish out the year. So that's part of it. But I thought this was interesting. He, he said, I'm going to read the full quote here, because it wasn't on camera. There's no one that wants him here more than Mike Rizzo and myself, because I know when he does get here, he's going to help us. But we've got to be smart about it. And I think Riz has done a great job of holding him back, because there have been times when he's been really good. We sit down and say, oh man, this could be the time. But then we sit down and say, what's best for Cade right now? And that's to continue to let him develop. He's going to be here. He'll be here soon. But we've got to stay strong and not try to push him up here. Just continue to let him develop, get stronger. That's about the most detailed answer anybody has given about Cade Cavalli this year and why he's still at AAA. You can agree with it or disagree with it, but they are holding firm to that. And so I came out of that today thinking we're not going to see him anytime soon. Probably it's going to be September before we see him. It may, may just end up being a little taste of it, a few starts down the stretch and not a decent chunk of the second half of the season like we all thought it would be. Yeah. So I have two very different reactions to what's going on with Cade Cavalli right now. The first one is I respect the heck out of what the Nats are doing here. They are behaving with extreme discipline, which I think is good. They are not letting their mess of a major league team govern how they handle Cavalli. And they truly believe that now is not the time for Cavalli. And so they are keeping him at AAA Rochester when the easy thing to do would have been to have called him up really weeks ago now. So I respect that. I do. Like, I think there's something to be said for you believe in a process, you hold true to your principles, and you adhere to how you think things should be. And hopefully you're rewarded for doing that. But I think there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, so I respect Mike Rizzo in that regard. On the flip side, though, and at the same time, at the same time, I think it's really disappointing that Cavalli's not up yet. And I think that that's an indictment of where he's at in his development. And I think that that is a reflection of a very uneven season that he has had for Rochester. He got off to a bad start. Uh, he since then has been up and down. Now, lately, he's been more good than bad. Cavalli in the month of July, over three outings, 15 and two-thirds scoreless innings with 16 strikeouts. So you like that. But, you know, his June wasn't very good. His overall season numbers at Rochester 
have not been very good. If you look at some of the top pitching prospects in baseball, you see a good number of them have these like seasons that scream that they're ready, you know, like dominant numbers, you know, one good outing after another. You have not had that with Kate Cavalli so far this year. And it's kind of odd because he last season pitched at three different levels of the minors and he was excellent at the first two. And then he struggled at Rochester, but that was over a small sample size. So I don't think anybody read too much into that. But when you add that onto what has happened with him this season, the truth of the matter is he has not been very good at AAA. You know, he hasn't been awful, but he has not been great. He has not been dominant. He has not done as you would want one of the top pitching prospects in the sport to have done. And especially off again, what Davey Martinez said a few months ago during spring training of, you know, making it sound like, first of all, there was a period of time, remember, and we talked about it. Could Cavalli break camp with the Nats, right? Like things were starting to look like maybe that was going to happen. And of course, it ended up not happening. And here we are now about to go into the month of August, and it doesn't look like he's coming up anytime soon. I don't know how you dress this up in any way other than this is disappointing, and this does not speak well for where they think Cavalli is at. It doesn't mean that he's a lost cause. It doesn't mean that this discipline being shown by the Nats won't be rewarded. But if you're being honest about things here, I don't know how you can in any way frame this as great news. Like, you know, it looks like Cavalli is going to become what we want him to become. No, right now it sounds like he's kind of stagnating a little bit at AAA. So, yeah, I think a couple things to keep in mind here, and we're all guilty of maybe not paying attention to these facts prior to this point. Number one is that he is not a Steven Strasburg. You know, he is not the uber pitching prospect who's regarded around the entire sport as the guy or one of the top two or three guys in the sport and who like you said, had those kind of numbers in the minors at every level that screamed that he was ready for the big leagues. And every start that he makes at AAA is a start too many that you're wasting. You got to get him up. That was the case with Strasburg. Even to an extent, it was the case with Lucas Giolito when he was called up. He had the dominating numbers in the minor leagues. That's not who Cade Cavalli is. He was drafted later in the first round and he has not pitched as much. And that's the other thing here. He's only two years removed from being drafted. And I think in our minds, we've been spoiled by guys like Strasburg and others who've come up in the past and the faults of the Nationals farm system as a whole, that he's all they've got, at least in in terms of an elite prospect who's somewhat close to big league ready, that we've focused in on him and just assumed that he's the real deal and he's going to be here as soon as possible. And he is the number one reason to be excited about what may be coming the rest of the season and be the ace of this team right from the get-go. And the fact of the matter is, is that while he may become that guy, he's not there yet. And that's okay. It's just an admission that he is not essentially the next Strasburg, at least not yet in terms of the guy who just burst through the minor leagues and is big league ready in less than two years and just is off and running from the start. So I think we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes. And it was easy to fall into the trap of, well, he's their top prospect. So therefore, he must be that good and he must be on a fast track to the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, but he is good enough to be considered a top 100 prospect, you know, and he's in that top like 70, top 65 territory. So there are other people who view him pretty favorably. And he was a college pitcher. He was taken out of Oklahoma in 2020. So in theory, it's not unreasonable to think that by 2022, if things are going well and he's healthy, he could be pitching for you at the major league level. It's not fair to Cavalli, but it's hard if you're a Nats fan and you know the recent draft history to look at this and say, okay, 
The Nats took a pitcher in each of four consecutive first rounds of MLB drafts. 2017, Seth Romero, complete disaster. 2018, Mason Denneberg, he's had a devil of a time staying healthy. 2019, Jackson Rutledge, he's dealt with ineffectiveness and injury, and only now it sounds like he's maybe about to be promoted to high A. I mean, he got taken in 2019, and he only now might be going to high A. Like, where are we with him? And so Cavalli's like your hope. And the struggles of Romero, Denenberg, and Rutledge have nothing to do with Cade Cavalli. None of those guys have anything to do with Cavalli. But if you're a Nance fan, how do you not think about all of this? And how do you not say to yourself, boy, Cavalli has got to come through. Cavalli has got to be the ace he was drafted to be. And that here we are now deep into this season, and he may not be coming up until September. You're like, why is that? And what does that say about where he's at? But that might also give a, some insight into the organization's thinking here in that they know they need him to be the real deal. And they do believe he can be the real deal. And that's why they're holding off, because the last thing they want to have happen is to call him up before he's truly ready, have him get hit around or struggle. And maybe that causes long term effects. Go back to when Giolito came up. Very different situation. But he came up and was unimpressive in those first few starts, so much so that the team wound up trading him in the Adam Eaton deal. And it took a couple of years before Giolito with the White Sox developed into the ace that he finally became. Again, not the exact same situation. That was a team that was trying to win and couldn't afford to let a guy come up here and fail. But I do wonder if in the back of Rizzo's mind, he thinks about that and says, when Cavalli comes up here, I want him to have the best chance of success. That big league starts aren't necessarily best for his development if they aren't successful starts. And right now, for whatever reason, they may feel like there's a chance that they're not going to be successful. Yeah, and I would say this too. You know, there's a lot of pressure on Cavalli to succeed. There is even more pressure, I think, on the Nats for Cavalli to succeed, not just because the Nats want to be good again as soon as possible, but what is it going to say about this team and its player development if they blow it with Cavalli? And we have another highly drafted Nats pitcher who doesn't pan out, at least not for the Nats. I mean, that's going to look so bad on, on this organization if Cavalli ends up being a flop. So I could see the organization maybe being like, boy, until we think he's like good and ready, we're not taking any risks here, you know, because we can't afford for this guy not to pan out. And the Nats can't afford for him not to pan out for a variety of reasons right now. Uh, so, yeah, so Corey Abbott for now is uh, at the major league level for the Nats. Paolo Espino was an ad starting pitcher in this 7-6 win over the Cardinals at Nationals Park on Saturday night. Four runs in four and two-thirds innings. He allowed just one run through four innings, but he, in the top of the fifth, allowed three runs on a homer, three singles, and an RBI sack fly. Tough spot for Paolo to be kind of, you know, thrust into this outing on Saturday night on short notice, although this is kind of what Paolo Espino is here for. And then we got the Nats bullpen in this game on Saturday night. And You know, this wasn't necessarily like another one of these dominant outings from the bullpen, but you certainly had some really impressive work by multiple Nats relievers in this game. So two guys struggled, Andres Machado and Carl Edwards Jr. Machado was charged with one run, got just one out. Uh, Edwards in the top of the eighth made a mess. He was charged with a run, recorded just one out, faced four batters, uh, gave up two singles and a walk. But Hunter Harvey was good. Came to the game top of the six. Runners on first and third. Nobody out. Game tied at four. Induced an RBI sack fly off the bat of Lars Newtbar for a 5-4 Cardinals lead. But then recorded back-to-back strikeouts of Paul DeYoung and Andrew Kisner. And the flame-throwing Hunter Harvey was on full display in this game. Harvey's four-seam fastball velocity when facing Kisner peaked at 98.6 
miles per hour for StatCast. Erasmo Ramirez tossed a perfect top of the seventh, and Kyle Finnegan came into the game to clean up the mess that was left by Carl Edwards Jr. And Finnegan, what a job by him. One and two-thirds perfect innings for an excellent five-out save. Comes into the game, top of the eighth, bases loaded, one out, Nats up 7-5, induces a one-out RBI sack fly off the bat of Paul DeYoung to cut the Nats lead to 7-6. And then Finnegan gets a pinch-hitting Brendan Donovan to fly out for the third out. And then Finnegan tosses a perfect top of the ninth. We have said this with Finnegan. He's not always on. He isn't. But when he's on, boy, he can be masterful. And he was masterful on Saturday night. And the guy who is coming into the highest leverage spots, and again, maybe doesn't succeed 100% of the time, but has done it way more often than not and has, I think, started to prove himself as a real late-inning threat. That's the second time in a week that he's been thrown into that spot. Bases loaded, one out, like we said last time. One pitch, double play. Didn't quite get it this time. He did allow an inherited runner to score, but... That was through no fault of his own. And what I loved about it, just like that other game in Arizona, the emotional high of getting out of the jam in the eighth with the lead intact. And then he comes back in the ninth and there was no drama. Bam, bam, bam. One, two, three, because the Cardinals had the meat of the order coming up. If anybody got on base, he was going to have to face Goldschmidt and Arenado. And he never had to face them because they were stuck in the on deck circle. And he went one, two, three against their number nine, one and two hitters. So Big time save from him. We haven't talked about him a lot, but I do think there's going to be some interest from teams in Kyle Finnegan, who's got three years of control. We'll see. This is this interesting debate. If you're Mike Rizzo, do you hang on to a guy who looks like he could be a big part of your bullpen for several more years, who's still cost effective? Or do you cash in while he's hot and maybe get something of consequence for him because teams do need relievers this time of year? They got about less than 72 hours now to make that decision. But I I don't want to shortchange that as much as we talk about Soto and Bell. I think Finnegan, everybody except for those two, could probably bring the most back in a trade right now because of the control and the fact that teams do prioritize relievers this time of year. Yeah, it's funny with Finnegan because there are plenty of relievers in MLB this season who have had better seasons than Finnegan has had. I mean, his numbers are not overwhelming and he has given up a good number of home runs. But A, the team control aspect, and B, the upside. Again, when he's on, he's really on. Like There is a ceiling for him that not every reliever has. And so if you're a contending team, maybe you say to yourself, well, we can get him to pitch close to that ceiling or at that ceiling more often than maybe he has with the Nats. And so, you know, you you go ahead and take a chance on trading for him. So yeah, look, I I think if you're Mike Rizzo, if you get something substantial back for Finnegan now, you do it. I don't think you wait on this, but I think the nice thing with Finnegan is if you don't get something back substantial or you can't, you could always trade him next year. You know, it's not like you have to trade him right now, which is how they've been acting with Juan Soto. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. You've been a national your whole career. You won a World Series with the Nationals. How difficult would it be for you to leave Washington? It would have been pretty tough because uh, I always see myself um, in a good spot here. I feel good at the city, at being a championship here. Uh, but it's like, like I say, I, I'm a, I'm a winning player and I will do anything to win. Uh, I would love to stay here. I will be more than glad, but at the end of the day, I don't make decisions. Uh, I'm just here to play, to give my 100% every day in the field, in the stadium, and everywhere, everywhere I go. Every day, there is a parade of reports and items and conjecture in this Juan Soto saga. We do like an hour on Soto uh, on every installment of the podcast here. So Ken Rosenthal was at Nationals Park on Saturday for this game. Rosenthal on the FS1 pregame show on Saturday afternoon said that the San Diego Padres and these very St. Louis Cardinals are, quote, the perceived frontrunners, end quote, to trade for Soto. We've heard Padres and Cardinals quite a bit, so I don't think that that's shocking. Uh, This would fit into the MO of A.J. Preller, who runs the Padres. You know, Preller has made a million trades during his time running Padres baseball operations. He is not afraid to make big moves. And you think about what San Diego could put together were it to get Soto with Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, think about that threesome. Soto, Tatis, and Machado for years to come in San Diego. So there was that. And then there also was a Soto pregame interview with Ken Rosenthal. And said Soto regarding staying with the Nats, quote, I would love to stay here. I would be more than glad. But at the end of the day, I don't make decisions. And quote, okay, fine. But what was also notable about the interview was that Soto kept emphasizing winning. If you watch the interview, you can find it online. Soto talked about being, quote, a winning player, end quote, said that he would, quote, love to win. And I just want to see the chance that where we can win and how we can win, end quote. I know this has come up that Soto wants to see if the Nats are going to be a winning team anytime soon. Uh, You're not going to see that anytime soon. That's part of the problem here for the Nats. This thing about winning, though, because we've heard athletes say this a lot over the years, and you know, there's a school of thought that says it's always about the money. It's never about anything other than the money. What do you think with Soto? Do you think winning matters? Or I mean, I, I'm sure it matters to a degree, 
But do you think winning is truly a big factor here? Or do you really think it's just about the money? And if the Nats made him an offer he couldn't refuse, he wouldn't refuse that offer. I think the winning is a big part of it. And I say it for, for a couple of reasons here. I've been saying this all year long. I don't know there's any offer that you can make Juan Soto right now that he definitely takes with the Nationals. That because of what they've been through in the last year, and then add the ownership question on top of it all, wouldn't you want to see what direction they're going? We don't know what this franchise is going to be in the coming years. Are they going to be a team that very quickly becomes big spenders and is back in contention in a few years again? Or are they about to become the Kansas City Royals or Pittsburgh Pirates or even the Orioles who now are finally getting it back together again? But this is what, like year five of their rebuilding. And if deep down Juan Soto knew that that's going to how long it's going to take, I don't know that there is a figure that he would say yes to because he also knows and, and he's been advised well by Scott Boris on this front that if he just waits it out, he's going to get his money anyways. And why not take that money from a more obviously successful situation, which could be the case in a few years? Now, it, that may be here if he waits it out. He may see that it's working here and they offer the money and have a team that's getting ready to win again. And that is appealing to him. But at this moment, it's not. And just think about this. He's such a unique case because he comes up as a 19-year-old in 2018 on a team that's trying to win at highest of expectations. They didn't win that year, but the expectation was they were going to win. Then in his next full first season in the big leagues, they win the World Series and he's a huge part of it. And then for two years after that, he's on a team that at least goes into the season expecting to win with star power all around him. And now this year, for the first time, he's on a team that knew it wasn't going to win and did not have anything close to resembling the talent that he was used to before. This is all he's ever known. So I can see why for him, even more so than other players, the idea of being with a winning organization matters a lot. Yes, it is the money, but ultimately, I think he's going to get the money from somewhere. So why take it right now from a team that he doesn't know for sure is going to win if he can wait it out and know for sure that he's either going to get it from this team or from someone else? I always wonder, though, in these situations, what I will call, for those of you who are WWF fans, the Ted DiBiase principle, everybody has a price. Everyone to me has a number. So like, let's just get crazy. Let's say the Nats, instead of offering 15 for 440, offered them 15 for like 600. You know, like they offered them $40 million per year. Would he turn that down? Like, would he really turn down a $600 million contract extension? Like, there must be some number that would compel him to say yes. Now, whether the Nats would ever be willing to go to that number, whether the Nats should be willing to go to that number, different conversations. But like, is it really truly the case that he's unsignable, as has been said? Or is it just that his number is sky high? But if someone meets that number, he's willing to do it. If the Nats next owner, assuming that there is a next owner, is a Steve Cohen type, someone who does not care about spending, and offers him a contract extension number that starts with a five or maybe even a six, who knows, would he really turn that down? And maybe the answer is yes. You know, we don't know. But I always wonder about that. Like, again, the saying in sports for years, right, has been when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. And the people are always at the end of the day going to do things for money. And I just wonder about that with Soto. But if, of course, if the Nats trade him by Tuesday, we're not going to find this out. This is part of why, to me, the play here is to wait and address this in the offseason, assuming you have new ownership in the offseason. If you don't, 
different story. One other thing with Soto that I've thought about. So, you know, I just made mention of this idea of, you know, is he worth whatever big time money might be uh, enough to make him accept an extension? We could argue that no player is worth $30 million a year, $40 million a year. But there are some athletes who impact not just your sports operations, but also your business operations, right? They are draws. They sell tickets. They put eyeballs on televisions and on tablets. They sell jerseys, etc. Do you know, have the Nats ever tried to quantify, do the Nats have any kind of a sense on the business impact of a Juan Soto. There have been so few players for the Nats. There, there are so few players in sports who are true economic factors. I think you could very much argue Soto is an economic factor. Is there any sense on what he means to the economics of the Nats? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. And the other player in the past who this has come up with was Bryce Harper. And Scott Boris would make that argument very strongly back in the you know, the year or two before Bryce became a free agent and saying what you're investing in here is not just a player who's going to win for you on the field, but he is going to bring bigger ratings for TV. He's going to bring more fans to the crowd. He's going to bring jersey sales, attention, all of that. And there, and especially in baseball, there aren't that many of those guys who do all that. But Bryce Harper is one of them. And I believe Juan Soto is one of them. I'm sure Scott Boris believes it too. And I think the learners and everybody here knows that, yes, that is probably true. And it's up to them to figure out just what difference that really makes and how much you're willing to go above and beyond on a contract for him. But yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. I think that is an underrated part of this. And I know it's not Mike Rizzo's job to really think about that stuff. It's really the owner's job to think about it. But I've had this thought a few times here in the last week. I get that if in your mind you're convinced he's never going to resign here or we're never going to be willing to pay whatever it would actually cost to resign him here. But here's a, a flip side argument to it. You have one of the most dynamic young players in baseball under your control for the next two and a half years. He can't go anywhere. You have control over that. Even if your team is really bad, isn't there value in having him here? because of all that other stuff that comes with it and that the organization is more valuable with a Juan Soto on it. Even if that means at the end of two and a half years that he walks away and you don't get anything for him. Is that the worst outcome? I don't know. I don't know if it is. I think there could be something to be said for having that one iconic player who is associated with your franchise, who sells tickets, gets people to watch on TV, buys their jersey, represents your team every year at the All-Star Game, all those kinds of things, both because it can ultimately help you win again when you have someone like that. But even if you don't and you do end up losing him, I don't know if that's the worst thing in the world. Yeah, trading him, maybe you get some players who make a difference in the end, but you don't know what they're going to become. And so part of me almost wonders if there is a reason just to hang on to him and you hope that the team starts winning and that he decides, hey, I want to stay here forever and he's a national forever. But even if he doesn't, at least you would end up with seven years of Juan Soto as a Washington national. And I think there's value in that. I think it's tough, too, with the Nats because it's hard to judge business the last two years because of COVID. You won a World Series and you never reap the benefits of that. You have an unusual local television arrangement from which you don't make the kind of money that we know that the organization wants to make. And the team right now is really bad. And we've seen crowds dip down. And I wonder if the learners are like, well, you know, we're seeing this season what kind of our base season ticket 
situation is. And if this is what it is with Soto, is he worth having because he only impacts business so much? So I don't know what indicators they have. This is an impossible question for those of us on the outside to answer. The true economic value of Juan Soto to the Nats, like quantifying it, putting a number on it. But I mean, I think that that's something to think about with him because 99% of the players in baseball don't mean anything for box office. You know, it's just, it's about whether you're winning or losing. Soto, like you said, is one of those rare guys for whom you can make the case. Yeah, he sells tickets. He puts eyeballs on TV sets and tablets. He sells jerseys. And there's obviously value in that, but it's not easy to determine. And especially the last few years with the Nats, I think it's really difficult to determine. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shovers. Again, the email address is Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Nats Chat Podcast. Subscribing costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on both 1061 ESPN in Richmond and on Sports Radio 96.5 FM and 8.50 AM in the Hampton Roads area. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. It is time now for the final look back at the month that changed everything for the Nats, July 2021. And on this look back, we look back at the sell-off. Eight players traded away for 12 prospects, one of the most magnificent fire sales in Major League history, really. And by magnificent, I mean in terms of the scope of it. You don't see that kind of fire sale often. We had it with the Nats last year. And so we leave you with that look back, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. Friday ends up being the day on which one of the all-time sell-offs comes to its culmination. And I want to again applaud the Nats for what they have done. I know a lot of Nats fans are not happy. I know even more Nats fans are sad. I get all that. But at the end of the day, This, to me, is a very good thing that the Nationals have done. It was interesting. I was watching Mike Rizzo's press conference, and he talked about how, you know what, this was exciting from a baseball standpoint. And I think he's right. This was exciting. Like, it it was sad, but it was also exciting. And, and, you know, you're allowed to experience dual emotions with something like this. But the Nats went all in on this sell-off. There was no hesitation. There was no wishy-washy. There was no, well, we want to do this, but we don't want to do that. The Nats were aggressive. The Nats were bold. The Nats have brought in a total, again, of 12 prospects to a farm system that was in dire need of an infusion of prospects. And we'll see what these guys end up being. But I think it's okay to, while you you want to lament the losses of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, fine, but it's okay to be a little excited about these things and to be thinking about the future and, and to be saying, you know what, this may not feel great in the moment, but this was a good thing overall that the Nats just completed. There's certainly a faction of this organization in the front office that had probably been waiting for this day for a little while, to be honest, that probably knew the writing was on the wall and felt like it just needed to finally happen. And when it does finally happen, you're able to go out and say, we get to reshape our organization for the future. For some people, I think that is an exciting thing. Now, for the guys in the clubhouse who are here right now and are finishing out this season and don't really know what the future holds beyond that, that's a much tougher proposition for them. But like I said, to their credit, they went out and played with energy. They played well and won the game. So that part of it was fine. But 
take the last, I don't know, however many years for this organization. This day, or I guess these two days together, could end up being among the most consequential in franchise history. You know, it's a different kind of consequential than some of the other really big moments for them. But if this ultimately leads to where they want it to go, we will look back on July 29th and July 30th, 2021, as the end of one era and the start of another one, and that the hope is that this ultimately leads to another one. I thought maybe the most interesting thing that Rizzo said, or the thing that, that stuck with me the most about what he said, was that in his first year as GM, 2009, when he took over, that was the low point for the franchise. There was nothing lower than that. This was the Smiley Gonzalez scandal. This was they had failed to sign their top draft pick, Aaron Crow. They hadn't yet drafted Steven Strasburg. They were coming off a 100-loss season. That was the low point. We started this thing in, in 2009 way below where we're at today as far as organizationally, and it took us three years to uh, to win 98 games. Their first division title, and you saw the beginnings of the core group that now would lead them all the way to ultimately to a World Series in 2019. And he said, where they're at right now is in a much better position than that was in 2009. Now, obviously, they got a long way to go. But if he feels like they did this once in three years, starting from the absolute basement to get to 98 wins, and they're in a better position now, you know, maybe it's not as daunting a task as it sounds. Let's see. There's a long way to go. A lot of things have to happen. But I think people should be more encouraged by where they are, that this isn't necessarily a you know, they're not about to become the Pirates or the Tigers or something like that. This could be, we've seen the Red Sox rebuild fairly quickly. We've seen a few other organizations do it. Maybe this is more along those lines. And this is just the start of that. 